diagnosed in our life and lives and that we will be, uh, that love as commanded will be prescribed and that the motive will be embraced and that it will fuel us and compel us to have a crazy otherworldly love for each other. Lord, I pray that that's how we're characterized, not for the sake of even Crosspoint Fellowship, and especially not any of our names, but for the sake of the name that we bear. Pray for a scandalous love, a rich, robust, consistent, resilient, not fragile love. A love that's not based on the lovability of the loved. I pray for that sort of love that we can have with each other. Lord, we can't muster it. We pray that you'll give it to us. I pray that your, your commandment, your word, and your design will be on display in the next few minutes. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to John chapter 13, please. This is the message that was to be preached last week, and actually we... What we did last week is we kind of took a Sunday to digest. If you've been here the weeks prior to last week, you may have found yourself in a place where you're really wrestling with some questions. And last week, I think the Lord kind of took a, a day for us to just kind of get settled about some things. And uh, if you missed last Sunday, man, I, I really urge you, or even the previous Sundays, I urge you to take advantage of our our sermons being online or hard hard copies of CDs outside on the table. Take time to invest in something that will be an eternal message that will change you. And um, I think that this last Sunday would be a great blessing to you. This Sunday we're going to climb into a passage of Scripture that we've skipped in John 13. We're actually, after this specific sermon, we'll be finished with John 13. But what we're going to do this summer, uh, I'm actually going on sabbatical in um, July, July 20th is my last Sunday to preach for three months. And then for a three-month period, our other elders will be bringing the Word, standing and delivering. Scott will likely be preaching some, and it'll be a great time for you all to uh, recognize, get to know, and hear from some of the other leadership of this body. But up until that time, what we're going to do is really been fueled by where we're going this morning. A little passage in John 13 that introduces a commandment to love. We're about to dine on it, but Scott was kind of joking about it the other day. He said, well, we're just going to have the summer of love. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to all get tattoos like on the bulletin cover there and, you know, love tattoos. And we're going to take how the world has presented love, really, and we're going to put that on display, but we're going to put right next to it God's design for love. And it'll be both diagnostic and prescriptive. It'll be diagnostic of the way the wor- world and our flesh has shaped our view and understanding of love. Right up next to it will be God's view of love. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be a cool summer. And then after sabbatical, we'll climb back into John chapter 14. But let's climb into our passage this morning. John chapter 13, verse 31. <clears throat> when he had gone out, Jesus said... And before we consider what Jesus said, I want to point out who he is. Without having to go back and read the whole chapter, just to give you a little brief synopsis, there's been a pretty dramatic few passages here where Jesus is interacting with Judas. The other disciples are interacting with Jesus. The other disciples trying to figure out who, who the betrayer is and things like that. And this moment here in verse 31 where he says, when he had gone out, speaking of he, is referring to Judas. Judas has just been singled out as the betrayer and Jesus has just turned to him and said whether he's speaking to Judas or whether he's speaking to Satan he says do what you're going to do quickly so Judas gets up and grabs his money bag or whatever his backpack and he leaves and they watch him leave the room I, I imagine we don't know that but the moment is just so powerful it says when he had gone out Jesus said now Now is the Son of Man glorified. That now is so important. We're going to come back to that. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him at once. We're going to unpack that briefly. 
And he says little children. You can imagine him just looking around the room at the disciples, the remainder of the disciples. Little children, the sweet term of tenderness and affection. He says, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How do you love one another? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, Let's consider first Judas's departure and the timing of that. There's a few important things that we can now put down a, a, a stake in the ground. With Judas's departure, the betrayer has been purged from this little microchurch. The one who was not truly of them has become no longer of them and has left them. So now we have the church sitting at the table with Christ. And Jesus says, now that that's done... Now that Judas has left the room, imagining them just watching him get up and grab his bag and walk to the door. All of them, all eyes on him. The door shuts behind him. And now Jesus turns to them and gives them these words. Now that Judas is no longer among us, now that my betrayal is in full motion, now that my disgrace, really, which is really going to be his glory, what the world says, incredible disgrace, is going to be his most glorifying moment. He says, now it's time. He says, now is a time for glory to shine brightest. Three quick points about glory. This is kind of a weird passage here. Uh, God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself uh, and will glorify him at once. There's three things to draw out. First of all, God is glorified in the Son. Let me give you a little tip on how to understand that term glorify. The way I understand it is if God's attributes are on display and if I'm His and I'm going to glorify Him, then I'm seeing those attributes and I'm seeing that gospel on display and I'm glorifying Him is what I'm doing is I'm enjoyifying Him. It's a made-up word, but it's a good word. I'm enjoyifying. God is enjoyified in this thing being on display. So what he's saying here is that God will be enjoyified in the Son in what's about to take place in these next few hours, in the cross that next morning. God's going to be enjoyed, and the reason this, this moment where he's saying this and expressing this, the reason these hours are so, here's three P words, and this is not by design, they just were all three appropriate. Pregnant, poignant, and potent, all right here in this moment. The reason this moment is pregnant, poignant, and potent, this glory moment, is because the whole gamut of the character of God is on display in the cross. God's wrath is on display. You see the beating that Jesus took? The thing that we can't even see with our eyes, the thing we can't even see through the word, we can get glimpses of it, is that he also bore the sins of the world, this holy God the Son. Incredible wrath, incredible suffering. You see the holiness of God, the distance, the difference, the otherness of God directed in the cross. But then at the same time, you also see grace. And mercy. You see the gamut of the character of our mysterious, incredible, enjoyifying God on display in that one event. And all those character things are brought to bear in this one person. And they come together in this one person and this one hour in the cross. And God's going to be enjoyified in that. For ages to come, we'll look back at that hour and enjoy an incredible, scandalous gospel. Because if we've eaten our Old Testament, we know what God's wrath and God's holiness look like, and God's justice. We've seen Achan get stoned by the nation of Israel because he took a devoted thing. We've seen uh, Uzziah reach out and try and steady the ark and then drop dead because he thought that his hand was cleaner than the ground. We've seen the two guys, um, I forget their names, offer strange fire and become the sacrifice themselves. We've seen the white-hot holiness of God. We've seen the wrath of God. We've seen the justice of God. So now, in this one event, we're also seeing the grace and the mercy of God, where someone else is bearing that in our place. And God's going to be enjoyed in that. The word there is propitiatory word. It's not a preacher word. It's a word that's in our Bible. 
Propitiatory work means that he's absorbing the wrath that's due us. That's why he's going to be enjoyified in this hour, because we're going, that's my due. But yet someone has stepped in my place, uh, the perfect sacrifice, and is bearing that punishment in my place. God will be enjoyified in this moment. And the Son will be glorified in the Father. That's the second point of the just brief glory moments, glory points. The future glory of heaven is what he's talking about there, where the Son will be seated next to the Father. You may have seen some of these movies or something like that where an emperor goes on this, this uh, journey throughout a new land and he takes new lands through war and battle and his generals are doing their job and he comes back to his empire and everybody's there and they're all cheering for him. And what does he do? He comes in and he sits. sits on his throne. You see the robe just spilling out over him. The picture of him being seated is saying, I'm done. It's finished. I completed the work that I set out to do. Notice me seated. <laughs> Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians chapter six tells us, chapter two, verse six says that we are going to be seated with him. This picture of Christ being seated is the glory of Christ in that he's seated. The work is done. Finished. He will be glorified in the future glory as he sits next to the Father. The third glory point is that the Son's glory will happen immediately. No more delay. No more context building. Creation's already happened. The flood, Job, Abraham, Israel, Moses, well, Israel, Moses, Egypt, Exodus, Babylonian exile. All these things are context building. The glory moment happens now because all the context has been built. The sacrificial system has been engaged for 1,500 years. The, all the conditions, the conditions are perfect for him to be glorified and enjoyed. And now's the moment. No more law, no more judges, no more kings, no more prophets, no more mangers, no more temptations. His glory moment is now, in this time, on this cross. And he tells them, he says, where I'm going you can't come. Where I'm going, you can't come because, guys, as much as I enjoy you, you're DQ'd. DQ'd stands for disqualified. You're disqualified to go do what I'm about to do because you are blemished. I, on the other hand, am unblemished. So I'm going to take a place on a cross that's reserved for me, and you can't go there because nobody else could do what I'm about to do. Those nails... And that wood are made for me. That's my spot. So you can't follow me there. But as my final hours up to this cross, this is the context of where he's going here in this moment. As my final hours up to this incredible, pregnant, poignant, powerful, potent moment. There's another P we threw in there. As they're coming about, as these hours come about, and Jesus is almost is saying, as my soul within me is troubled. We know he's troubled when Judas left the room, whether it's through, but because tr betrayal is in motion or because a guy that followed him for three years, this tender God that we serve, was hurt. We know that he's troubled in these moments. And he says, as I only have a few more hours to pour into you, while I'm raw to what's in store, and while you're attentive to the gravity of these hours, now, I told you that word was important, now I give you a new commandment. And that new commandment, here it is, really complex and difficult. It is difficult, but not complex. Love one another. Okay? How, Jesus? Well, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Pretty important thing we're about to engage. I want to share six things having to do with this thing we've just read. First of all is that it's commandment. The world's view on love. I tell you that we're going to put the world's view right out there next to God's definition and God's exposition, illustration of what real love is. The world's view on love is that we're almost like a victim of it. You know, real love, you know, the Cupid, because he's flying around with a bow and arrow. And, you know, I, I was just going about my day. I was going to the bank. And there he went, boing. 
the teller right behind the counter there. It was love at first sight. That's the world's definition. I, I was just caught up in it. I mean, I knew I was going to marry that woman. So we dated for a fast and furious three months, and, and now we're married, and I've been caught up in this wave of emotion, and I've been smitten, and I couldn't help but, but, but obey the force of it. That's the world's definition. It makes great movies, right? I mean, I know y'all have seen the movies. I know some of y'all watch The Bachelor and stuff like that. If I did, I wouldn't confess it. But that's where the world is exposing the world's view on love through things like this. And this shows up in men and women all the time when they say, man, yeah, I need some counseling. Uh, you know, we, we want to try and make our marriage work or we want to try and salvage our marriage, but we just fallen out of love. Like the arrow fell out. You know, Cupid, it fell out. And, you know, we're just kind of, the wave ended. It hit the seashore. And we don't know what to do now. And the world says, listen, what the world says. The world says if love is true, you don't have to work at it because it's a force. That's what the world says. But yet right here, Christ presents something totally different. What you've got to appreciate is the world's, view of defini- the world's definition and view of love can creep into our Christian view on love and it can impact it. Instead of Cupid shooting the arrow, it's the Holy Spirit that shoots us with sort of a, a different sort of arrow. And then we're caught up with this wave of emotion. And it's very passionate and very exciting. And, and if it's true, then as we're caught up in this wave of emotion, then we don't have to work at it. Because we're just carried along by the force of it. And if we don't have to work at it, then, then it must be true. But Jesus here is commanding it. Do you have to command something that just comes naturally? I don't think so. He's commanding it. There's an incredible conflict here. There's a credible dichotomy. Two different views on love coming together, and, and, and there's, they're intersect. But they don't even intersect. They're, they're, they're in conflict with each other. The world says true love sweeps you away, and you can fall out of it when the wave ends, yet God says true love is command and obedience, and you don't fall out of commandment. These, they're the same word. The world used the word love, and what is used here is just different. I hope you're seeing that a little bit. They're just two different things. Same word. <laughs> that's why we've got to engage this. Why, that's why a summer is very appropriate for us to really examine. What is God's definition of love? The world says love is an emotion, and God said love is a command. A big difference. The world doesn't like love as command. But the people of God should understand command. Because the people of God have eaten the rest of our Bible, like Exodus. We ate Exodus. When God's people were drawn out of Egypt. And then we saw commandment because we saw Sinai quake. We saw the people of God gathered around Sinai where God told Moses, don't let anybody come next to this mountain. Don't let your kids run stray. Because if they even touch the mountain, they're dead. Don't let your cattle graze out there at the base of Mount Sinai when I'm giving these commandments because guess what will happen to them? They're dead because I'm about to give you commandment. We saw a Sinai quake. We saw thunder, lightning. The reason we can engage this and realize that this is different is because we've eaten Leviticus. We've eaten Exodus. We've eaten Deuteronomy. We've quaked with Sinai. We saw the smoke, the thunder, the lightning, and the shock, and the awe. So when we see you have a new commandment, we go, commandment. No joke. Not a suggestion. Something that's worth engaging for a summer. Second thing we know from this is first that it's commandment. The second thing we know that it's new. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. It's a new commandment. Leviticus chapter 19. I'll give you a page number of your pew Bible. It's page 98.
Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Listen to what he says next. He says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, I am the Lord. But yet over here, he's saying love one another, and he's presenting this as a new commandment. What I want you to see here and appreciate is that this is not a new commandment, as in new. It's an old commandment. In fact, it's... It's, a, it's about 1,500 years old by the time Jesus says it right here at this table, this dinner in this upper room. He says, I want you to love one another. He says, this is a new commandment, yet right here in Leviticus chapter 19, it looks like it's already an old commandment. Love your neighbor. I am the Lord. So why is it new? Because we know that Jesus is right. We're assuming that. It's new for two reasons. Here's the first. It's new because there's a new motive. The motive in Leviticus chapter 19, you see it right there, where he says, love your neighbor. I am the Lord. It's about the I bet parents, you've used this before with your kids. Listen, I want you to do what I say because I say so. Because I'm your daddy boy. That's why I want you to do it. We've used it before. That's right. That's the John Wayne parenting we talked about a few months ago. I know what that looks like. But the motive in that context in Leviticus 19 is love your neighbor because I said so. But now the motive has changed to love your neighbor or love one another because I'm about to suffer so. I am the Lord. He's about to round out the motive with a whole new motive. And then he says, or then the other motive is, or the other reason it's a new commandment is because it's something that new that the world has never seen. I'm just envisioning like this meteorite that comes crashing through the atmosphere crashes to earth a bunch of scientists show up and they pull out their periodic table and they're testing it and it's not it's not on the periodic table it's something totally different that the world has never seen and everybody wants to examine it and study it and understand the properties of it the weight of it they want to consider it because it's totally new the world has never seen it that's the character of this love where it's love for brothers fueled by christ's love for us the reason this is new at this point where he's about to go to a cross because jesus hadn't gone to a cross before now it's a new motive it's a new commandment because it's a new motive and because it's a new thing the world has never seen there's a bunch of people fueled by this incredible sacrifice changed by this incredible sacrifice and all want to examine it and check it out. And then in verse 34, let me show you this. In verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The just as I have loved you, this, this motive, this fuel for love in that way, is past tense. And actually, it's not past tense, it's aorist tense. Aorist tense in the Greek language is something that happens at a point in time. If you can imagine like a, a, a period, and in the case of the cross, it would be an exclamation point. That it happened at a point in time. Aorist means that it's contained. He says, love as I have loved you, but the, the verb for us is present tense. So our present tense verb of loving one another is fueled by the past tense or aorist tense verb of him completing that love in the cross. Love one another, present tense. Just as I have loved you, exclamation point, tense. The third thing is that this new commandment is otherworldly. Like that meteorite that came in through the atmosphere. This thing doesn't come naturally, this kind of love. The love that he has, says to have for one another doesn't come naturally. A book that I read a few years ago is a book called The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis where he deals with these four different Greek words for love, eros, phileo, storge, and agape. And it was a remarkable book. He exposes the character of each of those kinds of loves, which I appreciated because in the English language, we say, I love cheeseburgers, and I love riding my scooter. I love to take a nap. I love my wife, I love my children, and I love Jesus. And oh, I love burritos. <laughs> and that same word is used for all those things, yet in the Greek they're going, no, let's use a different word for those kind of things. So 
So that's why it's important to consider this. In this case, what I'm considering when I examine those different kinds of love, this uh, eros, which you can imagine what eros is, that's where erotic love comes from. It's very sensual, passionate love, physical, in a physical nature. Phileo is friendship love. Uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that's where that comes from. That sort of love. And then there's storge, which is a little bit more discreet. You probably don't know what that is. That's the love that a parent has for a child. And it's really on display in the, the love that a mom has for a kid, even when a kid is a rascal. <laughs> and he's like in jail. <laughs> and she's like, my kid is he's the best, man. That's storge. <laughs> and I, as I consider Eros, Phileo, and Storge, I'm looking at those going, those aren't very hard. Those come pretty natural. I think those are on the periodic table. I think they're already here. Because you don't have to work at erotic love. You don't have to work at phileo. Because, I mean, dude, outlaws can be the best of friends while they go do terrible things together. Man, we are we're tight, boy. We love each other, man. And like I said, moms can love a real rascal. And store gazing place. So I'm seeing those as real natural loves. And when I'm considering those natural loves, I'm considered that each of those natural loves are fueled by a self-love. I, I love this girl, in a, in a, I'm not, hopefully not getting graphic, but I'm just imagining. Someone says they love this girl because it, she just, man, we're so passionate. We're just, we're so hot for each other. That's because she makes me feel good. It's a self-love at the root of that. And the love for the, the, the outlaw buddy, man, my identity is in how this dude loves me back. Let's go get on our motorcycles <laughs> and go ride like the wind together. We love each other. It makes me feel good hanging with my bud, man. Not, not that motorcycles are bad. And then the storge is fueled by a, a na very natural love where I, I, I find my identity in being a mommy or a daddy. I love being a daddy. It just means so much, even though my kid's a rascal. They're fueled by self-love, and it's a love that's in it for something that serves yourself. An example, I'll be very honest with you, Christian, I've been married 13 years coming up in a few days. When we, got, when we first got married, man, I'm going to tell you, I really believed then that I loved my wife, and I still believe there was probably some right, righteous love in there because we were both believers, and I believe there was an element of it. But more in me than anything was, I love me and I want you. Just being honest with you. Selfish love. It comes very naturally. The natural love says, love the lovable because it makes you feel good. That's the world's love. But this love right here that's commanded, this new commandment kind of love, is the love agape. And this agape love is like that meteorite that's crashing through the, the atmosphere that is not on our periodic table. That's not something that comes naturally. If you're thinking to yourself, as I expose this, I just couldn't do that. <laughs> I'm just not like that. Well, no, duh. You're not. Nobody is naturally. This has got to come from a divine resource, an outside resource, something that is granted to us, given to us. This kind of love, and here's the nature and character of this love. This love isn't measured or meted out based on the lovability of the love. There's no self-service. There's no self-gratification in this kind of love. That's not what fuels it. That's why this love, when you really examine it, as I'm studying it to preach it, I'm going, ooh, I wonder how little of this love I actually know. Because I'm so selfish at heart, I bet everything, some way I could map it out and figure out how it came back to me. Even good deeds. But this love is different. It is not selfish, self-gratifying sort of love. This kind of love isn't fueled by emotion. This sort of love isn't fueled by or hindered by what you feel like either. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. This is a decision to love. This is a will to love. This is an intention to love because it's a commandment. To love. There's zero self-interest in this love. 
As I'm considering that, preparing to preach, I'm thinking, man, i got to help people with what fuels this kind of love. Because we can't just put it out there. Because if you're like me, you're going, okay, I've swallowed hard because I see its commandment. I see that it's new. It's fueled by the cross. But how does it manifest? I actually went back and studied that most of you probably know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There's an early version of the Old Testament that's written in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And that's really cool. You may, who cares? It's really cool because what it is, it's like an early commentator going back and taking Greek words that are very precise and very informative and taking a language that's a little more simple and going back and really like a commentator saying, this is what this means. So where I'm going with all that is I studied Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. For a Jew, when you say Shema, they could just recite it in Hebrew. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's a passage that said the Lord is one. You may be familiar to you. But this passage, I considered that passage. I looked at it through the lens of the Septuagint and found that that love is agape love. That we're to have this love that we have for one another, also Godward. So it's not this caught up in emotion, caught up in wave thing. It's a decision sort of love. And the character of that love, when he says love the Lord with all your heart, that word there in the Hebrew is actually a word that points to the will. We have some sports-isms that, believe it or not, probably came from this. If you have a little league game and the kids are out playing, you know, and your kid's on a little league team and you win and you go home and you call grandma and grandpa, you know, to give them the news, we won. And, you know, your mom or dad and you're telling them, man, mom and dad, you should have seen little Johnny. He played with such heart. He played with such resolve. He played with such commitment. It means that he played until the game ended. He was attentive on the field, fielding those balls. Uh, every inning, he, was, uh, he wasn't looking at the bird, Tweety Birds flying over. He was watching the batter, 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 batter. He's engaged with everything in him. That's the mindset and the, 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 cont- or the, the illustration of the picture behind this sort of love for God that we're playing until the whistle blows. We're loving intentionally with every faculty within us. Like the team that finishes strong, that played with heart. So we love the Lord with our heart until the final breath. So we love each other with this kind of love, with our heart, with our will, with our resolve, with our intention, until the seventh trump or until we're called home first. The love among the people of God is to be different and it doesn't come naturally. It's resilient. It's consistent. It's not fragile and it doesn't depend on the lovability of the loved. The next thing from this passage is that this sort of love is especially for the people of God. I want you to remember the context. Remember the context where he says, Now, they watch Judas leave the room, and then he turns back to them, and he says, okay, now that that's done, now that Judas is no longer sitting at the table, now that I'm sitting with the church, now, now is the time for this teaching, this commandment that I'm about to give you. Now that Judas has left and the community of faith is purged, now, looking around at Peter, Jude, uh, Matthew, John, um, ordinary Phil, Bartholomew, Andrew, looking at all of them face, one face at a time, saying, now, love one another. And realize the context is this is the church. This is the people of God. What I want you to appreciate is that love within the church is a special kind of love. There's a mindset among contemporary Christianity that I've heard this before. If a church is really, really engaged in loving one another, people will say they're not very evangelistic. They kind of show preference to each other over the lost. It's almost the mindset of Judas saying, man, Mary, you shouldn't spend all that money on that nard to anoint the feet and the head of Jesus. We ought to sell that and go take care of a bunch of the poor people. And Jesus says, hey, the poor will always be there. And the mindset is, in this passage is that there's a special sort of love that we have for one another. Are we burdened for the lost? You betcha. 
Are we, do we care about those who are needy? Do we want to be a benevolent people that the needy can come into us and find rescue and find help? Yes, absolutely, but that better be secondary to the benevolence and love that we have for one another. Galatians chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. I'll share it real briefly. It says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's everyone. means everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a unique and special love that we are to have for one another. And some think that the love for the found is unevangelistic. And think these guys are inwardly focused. And that's just off base. We care desperately about the lost. But there's a special character of the found. Turn to Acts chapter 4. I want to show you this in motion. Acts chapter 4. Verse 32. It's on page 912 of your pew Bible. The church is days and weeks old at this point. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Some of y'all know that we kind of started this thing on our website. It's called Everything in Common, where people that have something that someone can borrow or someone can share or that someone might need, they can post it. And that's for the people of God. Does, it, does that mean somebody, a, a, a Greenbleite that's checked out our website, couldn't have one of those things? No. You could probably have that and more. But there's this attentiveness to each other. We want to have everything in common. And it says, And with great power the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. They're talking about the people of God. There wasn't a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them. Imagine that economy. That's, a, that's called a kingdom economy. Sometimes we think that, man, I got a pay raise. What a blessing. You get a bigger house, bigger barn. Get a bigger car, nicer car. All these things that our mind immediately goes to. The people of God should go, mm, maybe this means I can help out people more. Maybe this means that I can have an special attentiveness to the people of God. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. <laughs> That's crazy. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He had everything in common. A couple months ago, we just, I don't know if it's a study from this passage or studying ahead or something like that. We just, a few of us kind of got the idea that, man, this should be the character of this church. So we started this everything in common thing. We also, there are families within our body, four or five families, young couples, maybe in, in a couple of cases, some single moms that are just having a tough time. Man, our economy is, it's difficult right now. People are taking a beating fuel and things like that and we've got some some families in our body so what we did is we put this thing out anonymous, anonymously to the body that anybody that wants to contribute to this and each of these five families is getting about 300 to 400 dollars a month for the summer for that those difficult months where you're just trying to figure out how to make ends meet that should be the character of god's people why is that so crazy? Man, that's crazy. Those guys are doing that for each other. Exactly, it's otherworldly. It's that meteorite. But it puts this scandalous, divine, crazy, awesome love on display where the rest of the world's not doing that. Man, this is an otherworldly economy. This is the kind of love that we're to have for one another. Worth spending a summer on? I need it. Have I arrived in this? Absolutely not. It's all I can do to bear with y'all half the time. <laughs> Being facetious. The cool thing about this, when the people of God have this sort of character, is that this is evangelism at its best. 
We don't need a scheme or a program or a plan or an activity scheduled to reach darkness. All we have to do is love each other like this. The cool thing about this Acts 1 through 4 church, it says over in Acts 2, numbers were added to them every day. Because people are going, dude, that's a scandal to be part of that church. If you have need, they're meeting it. <laughs> you can't pay your bills? Man, they're going to help you out. They're going to walk with you. They got those, those people, they have everything in common. That's evangelism. We don't need, nor do we want, a scheme or a program or an activity scheduled to reach others. We need to open the front door of our homes. We need to open our checkbooks, our pocketbooks, our, our front pockets, our, our schedules to one another. That's what love is. That's what this kind of love is. Do you see why we need this so much? You see why we need to engage this? Because it's commandment. You hear Sinai quaking? You hear new and see cross? You hear agape, selfless, independent, not based on the lovability of the love sort of love? You see it's especially for the people of God? And you see that this is evangelism? It's opening the doors of our houses doing away with things on our schedules so that we can spend time and walk with each other. The rest of the world is running 75, 80. The people of God run three miles an hour. We may do less stuff. I'm not picking on anybody, I promise you. So if you think I'm about to pick on something, I'm not picking on you. I'm just thinking of some of the activities that fill our schedule. Um, Little League, T-ball, Scouts. Some of these things we do too. So, again, I'm not picking. Horse riding, bowling, um, I don't know, bingo. <laughs> Maybe we're not that age group. But. These things that fill our schedule, each in, in and of in which themselves, there's nothing wrong. But if those things so stuff our schedule that we have no time to love one another, then we're not obeying this commandment. This commandment's a sacrifice. I'll share something with you. I'm reading a book right now. It's called Family Driven Faith. It's written by a guy named Vody Balkum. And this dude does not pull punches. You think I'm raw. Homeboy is mastered raw. Listen to this. He played football for some college team. I don't know who, but he's big old, big old athlete looking guy. And he's dealing with time. And dealing with everybody saying, you know, talking about sports and all these activities we can invest in. And he says, uh, people will follow up with questions when he presents this radical love for each other, this time expenditure for each other. He says, well, how do your kids, this is what people say, well, how do your kids learn teamwork and sportsmanship? Or how do your children learn to be competitive? And at this point, he says, I answered their question with another question. How did Thomas Jefferson... Benjamin Franklin, George Washington learned those things. Better yet, since Jesus is our ultimate model of Christian manhood, how did he learn these things? Was Jesus in Little League? It gets better. (laughs) He says, I'm not trying to say that it's necessarily wrong for children to play organized sports. Just insert activity X in there. He's, He's talking specifically sports right here. He says, my point is simply this. Being a member of an organized traveling baseball squad at age 10 doesn't add a single day to one's life. In fact, many of those activities get in the way of much loftier pursuits. People turned boys into men and girls into women. This is, I'm going to read this this, this sentence twice because it's fat. People turn boys into men and girls into women for most of recorded history without dragging them around town with their tongues hanging out in an effort to keep up with their overachieving, undereducated, theologically illiterate peers as they try to win trophies that will eventually gather dust in a basement somewhere. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm going to read that again. People turn boys into men and girls into women for most of recorded history without dragging them around town with their tongues hanging out in an effort to keep up with their overachieving, undereducated, theologically illiterate peers as they try to win trophies that will eventually gather dust in a basement somewhere. Is there anything wrong with T-ball? No, man. Anything wrong with horse riding? No, man. Be all you can be. But if it stuffs out, squeezes out a schedule that you, ha- you don't have time to love one another, 
then you're not obeying this commandment. Love takes time. And you know what? This is not just an adult issue. Some of the busiest people that I know right now are youth. you working all over the place. You don't have time to even... You're working on Sunday. And dads, you're letting them. You're thinking that's cool. He's becoming a man. <laughs> what? Why would you let them not engage the people of God in the Word of God? What is that signal? Does that send that it's okay to work on Sundays when the people of God gather? Please don't do that. And youth, please don't let things crowd out your schedule where you have no time to love one another. How much money you've made as a young man will not impact how you love one another. I don't mean that in a condemning way. I know you got bills and things you want to do and being, growing up into a man or a young woman is important and providing for yourself. But if it squeezes out love for one another, it's wrong. I don't care what it is. It's wrong. Call it career. Call it pro- profession. Call it uh, any activity. I don't care what it is. If it squeezes out love for one another, it is not obeying this commandment to love one another. This new commandment. This Sinai quaking commandment. God's people love each other in a way that the world cannot understand or appreciate. The rest of the world says, man, these, what's, what's wrong with that lead? Nothing. But if it squeezes out love, love it's got to go. People of God are different, and it testifies that we are disciples of Christ. All people will know that we are disciples and followers of Christ by how we love one another. If we look just like the rest of the world in our activity schedule, the rest of the world doesn't know anything. Lastly, and I'll share this briefly. These last few weeks, as we put up Judas and Peter, man, a lot of people have just been wrecked with this assurance. My, my view of assurance has been, this here's what I kind of heard from people collectively. My view of assurance has been disassembled and it's either in a state of complete disarray or now I'm kind of starting to see it being assembled in a different way. I'm finding my assurance in different things. That's good. Keep after it. But here's one of those things that will help reassemble biblical assurance. If all the world will know that you're disciples of Christ by how you love one another, just take yourself and insert it in all the world. Are you one of everyone? I think I am. Okay, I can know if I'm one of his. By do I, Is there love for one another? Is there this kind of love for one another? If I'm really going to be honest with myself, that's why I swallow hard. I hope there is. I hope there's a selfless love for one another that's not based on the lovability of the one loved. I hope there's this extreme, crazy, radical love for one another that means time, effort, means everything in common sort of relationship. If you want assurance, man, there it is. Are there any one another's in your lives, first of all? Are there any one another's? Do you have use for the people of God? Because remember, that's who's sitting at the table. The people of God. Do you keep them at arm's length? Is the most they get from you is a smile and maybe a handshake on Sunday morning? You can't love one another that way. If you have one another's, do you love them like Christ did? That's the next thing. The world also says that love is tolerance, right? Jesus wasn't tolerant. (laughs) Peter tried to talk him out of the cross, and he said, Get thee away from me, Satan. Whoa. That's kind of harsh. That's not very loving. (laughs) They wanted to make him king. He said, No, I'm not that kind of king. They wanted him to troop into Jerusalem, you know, on Passover and let them make him a king. And what does he do? Where's the donkey's colt? I want to find something that shows the world what kind of humble, lowly king I am as my feet are dragging into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt. And the disciples are going, oh, you look like a goober. But love isn't taught. Okay, whatever you want, disciples. You want to make me king? Okay, I love you, so okay. It's a different kind of love. It is, in many ways, a confrontational, truth-driven love. It sometimes says, man, you guys are doing a good job, and sometimes says, this is not right, and this can't continue. Love rebukes. 
His love challenged him too. His life was in danger when Lazarus died. We got the news about Lazarus. His life was in danger in Bethany. is about three miles outside of Jerusalem. And he says, okay, I, I guess we need to go to Bethany. And one of his disciples, I can't remember which one it was, says, okay, I guess it's time for us to all go die in Bethany. <laughs> True love says, no, let's go. I'm going to challenge you to be obedient. I'm going to challenge you to follow me. This love that Christ had for his disciples was not fragile. This love was resilient. This love was consistent. This love was dedicated. This love was devoted. This love was sacrificial. This love was fueled by truth. And this love was actually even in obedience to his father who commanded him to come do what he did. And his love for them was not based on the performance of the disciples. All you have to do is read the gospels to know these guys were knuckleheads. You'll know your Christ by your love. We are loved just as He loved. It's a commandment. It's new. It's otherworldly. It's especially for the people of God. Not only, but especially for the people of God. It's evangelism at its best. And it's assurance at its best. Let me pray. Lord, we beg for this kind of love. We pray that you will grow this in us and um, that you'll be on display in how we engage each other and how we sacrifice everything for this kind of love. Lord, I pray that you'll create in us just that we'll be a radical people. And that all of Greenville will know that we are your followers by how we love each other. Pray that thou be fueled by this incredible cross. This poignant, potent, pregnant hour that changed all of history. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.